Well, turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We are still in Jonah. We are still in chapter 1. But Lord willing, this will be the last week that we are in chapter 1 as we continue to move ahead in our sermon series through this very rich yet very small uh, book of Jonah. So Jonah chapter 1. If you are physically able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word and follow along silently as I read aloud Jonah chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. This is what the word of God says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Well, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, would you bless, as only you can do, the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word. Would you cause it to impact our hearts, our minds, and our lives such that we might be more like our Savior and less like ourselves, such that we might leave here a changed people because of your love and your grace and your mercy at work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In verse 4, the wording is this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Hurled, uh, the word translated there in the Hebrew into English, hurled, is the same word one would use as someone who is throwing a javelin. Now, 
I uh, participated in track and field events in high school, and, but I was a, a quarter miler. I ran fast and turned left. I never hurled anything, all right? The closest I came to hurling was sometimes at the end of the quarter mile of hurl, hurling. Uh, but I didn't hurl, didn't have the upper body strength, wasn't, didn't do shot put, didn't do that. But I've seen those who do it. And perhaps you've seen those who do it. And people, they would hold a javelin, a javelin thrower, and they, I can't even do a good impression. But they would hold the javelin and they run as fast as they can to the point where they need to hurl it. And what do they do? They hurl with all their might, such to the point that usually they fall. Many, many times, we're talking Olympic javelin throwers, Olympians will run as far as they can and then they put all their body weight, all their might into it so that they go, ooh, and they just hurl it and usually they fall right on their chest. This is the picture that the word of God would have us understand. This is the might that God used to hurl that storm upon the sea. Javelin throwers hurl the javelin as far as they can, as strong as they can, as fast as they can. And that's what God is doing here. God has taken a storm as it would be in his hand, get the picture of it, and hurled it as far as he could, as hard as he could, onto that sea to get the attention of one man named Jonah. So much so that verse 5 says the mariners were afraid. Sailors aren't afraid of storms. It's how they roll. This is what they do. This is their thing. This is not a big deal. But they knew something was different about this. They knew that this was supernatural. They knew that there was something spiritual behind it. Verse 5 says each cried out to his God. And then they hurled the cargo over the ship and to lighten it for them. But Jonah was down into the inner part of the ship. And the captain comes up to him, verse 6, and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Like, wow, how... How are you sleeping during this? And we're all crying out to our God. Cry out to your God. Hopefully one of us will get one of our God's attention and we will be spared. Which takes us to our text today in verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Now... When I last preached several weeks ago in this series, the end of your outline contained uh, what is now at the beginning of your outline. And that is this little chart that I've put together, this kind of the different steps that we take as we degrade into sin. Should we choose to not repent? Should we find ourselves caught up in our own sinful desires? And uh, I want to take a little bit, just a little bit of time and unpack that a little more than I did a few weeks ago. And for that, would you keep your place in Jonah 1, but turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Beginning in verse 14. James 1, beginning in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. One of the greatest mistakes we can make in the Christian life is think that the source of temptation is more outside of us than it is within us. Uh, thinking that we are tempted by all sorts of things that we experience outside of us, when in reality, the Word of God right here in the book of James says, that desire is in you, bro. That's, that, we're tempted by our own desires. It's not external, it is internal. Verse 15 says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so there's desire that keeps growing and growing and growing. Our desires become our demands. It's a good definition of lust. When my desire becomes my demand, 
uh, in anything, in any area of life, that becomes a demand in my life, then all of a sudden, it's not just a desire, it's a demand. It's not just a desire, it is lust. It's I must have it, I will have it, I will stop at nothing to have it. And verse 15 says, desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Meaning the end of all sin is in some way, shape, or form death. Uh, sin leads to death. Alt- it may not be physical death, but it will be spiritual death. There will be a dying of sorts as a result of unrepentant sin. And so in this, this little chart that I've come up with, it's at the top of your outline. We starts out by saying standing, meaning things are good. That doesn't mean we're good people. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It's just, bear with me. It just means like things are, are generally speaking, it's good. Move from standing to susceptible, right? Where we say, you know what? Things are good, but I'm, I'm, I'm sensing I'm being susceptible to some sort of temptation or there's desires on my mind. There's things I'm thinking about. I may not be in the best of spots. I'm not in the worst spot, but I'm not in the best of spots. And then we start rationalizing. And when we rationalize, we tell each other rational lies. We tell ourselves rationalized lies that make sense. This is Jonah saying, I know God says, but I know God told me to, but I know it's when you and I say, I know God's word says, when we say, but this is different. But this is my job, but this is my kid, but this is my spouse, but this is money, but this is needed, but this is health, but this is finances, whatever it is. We just come up with a reason of why God's word says something, and then we insert it, but this is different. And we start telling each other why God's word doesn't apply to this particular situation. We're seducing ourselves, talking ourselves into sinning, and then finally we sin in some way, shape, or form. Finally, Jonah sins, and instead of going overland to Nineveh, he goes by sea to Tarshish. Instead of going and following the Lord for free, he pays the fare and gets on a ship and goes to Tarshish to run from the presence of the Lord. And then what does he do? He goes down to the innermost part of the ship, and he's hiding. He's ashamed. When we find Jonah in the ship in the middle of the storm, he's sleeping. This isn't a testimony to the depth of his sleeping. We could have put sleeping on the chart. It begins with S. It would have fit in right nicely, but I didn't put that there. Look at verse 6. Back in Jonah chapter 1, verse 6. Captain's saying, what do you mean you sleep? We're like, what? Wow, really? Really? You're sleeping right now. How, how, what do you, call out to your God. We're going to die. We need your help. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Then in verse seven, it says they were casting lots, uh, casting lots to find out on whose account this storm was coming about. Now, Casting lots was a practice that was not uncommon in Old Testament times. We even see it in the New Testament. The word of God was not complete. We didn't have act. You and I have access, ready access to the word of God to hear every word that God wants us to know for life, for godliness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You've got it right here. In fact, even nowadays we have it in our phones. You could fire up the YouVersion app, right? Fire up the Bible. And all of a sudden, like, I wonder what God's word says about this. We have more access to hearing from God, to reading God than we ever did before in the entire history of the church. It's a very, very blessed day that we live in. Now, Jonah's days was not that way, and the, the canon was not complete. And so many times you'll find that people cast lots. It's like, Lord, make your will known to us through these lots. It's like drawing straws, or let's get pieces of stone, and each one of these will represent a person on the ship. And we're going to declare one side of the stone to be like heads, and another side to be tails. We'll put a mark on the side. And we're going to eliminate these stones one by one. Lord, make your will known to us through this. Let us know on whose account this comes about. 
And so it's not a practice that we use nowadays to finding out the will of God, although it is a practice I tried as a teenager one time because I'm standing at a bus stop and I really wanted this. It's a very important time in my life. I'm a teenager and I really needed to know from the bottom of my heart from the Lord God for him to speak to me, to my soul, and let me know if this girl liked me. So I cried out to God and I'm standing there, I'm waiting for the bus and I literally said, I'm like, no joke. I remember where I was standing, where I was looking about and I was just like, Lord, if she likes me, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to open my eyes. And then all of a sudden, Lord, just make a, a, like a red car appear or something like that. If a red car appears, I know she likes me. Close my eyes. I'm not kidding. I close my eyes. I open up. No red car. And so I close my eyes. I'm not kidding. And I said, God, best out of three. I'm going to open my eyes and I'm going to see just let's, let's. This is a ridiculous way to live life. We don't live life that way. We don't find out the will of God that way for major things in our life. God has given me everything I need to know. He may not have given me everything I want to know, right? But he gave me everything I need to know in his word that I might live a life that is pleasing to God. So we don't cast lots right now. We, we know God's will right here. We know God's will right here. We know his will for our life as to what we're supposed to do and not do because we have his all-sufficient, all-powerful, authoritative word. But we're told in Proverbs 16 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You can't flip a coin without it landing on the exact side that God wants. Can't roll a dice without it landing on the exact side God wants. In fact, uh, Sarah and I have this document of questions that we talk through sometimes just to bring up discussions. Some, Some of them are really deep. Some of them are really shallow or really surfacey. And so we're sitting out on the deck the other night, and we'll fire up the document. We share the, we sh- it's a shared Google document, and I'll take my phone, and I'll say, like, you know, hey, Google, pick a number between one and whatever it is, like 75, however many questions are on there. And it just tells us a number. Now, funny enough, there's one, there's one topic that I was like, I know we got to talk about this, but I really want to talk about this, and I'll feel ready to talk about this. I'm going to pray about it some more, and we'll think about it, and we'll, like, attack it. Well, wouldn't you know, Google fires up that number and all of a sudden we're talking about it and I don't think it's wrong to say apparently God said no it's time for you to talk about this doesn't matter if you don't feel ready it's time for you to talk about this let's let's talk about this it'll be good for you guys to talk about this the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord having God guide us in those little things and saying what should we talk about what do we do let's see how this works let's flip a coin that's fine but we have God's word his all-sufficient word to tell us everything we need to know for life and godliness. Jonah didn't have that. The sailors didn't have that. And so they cast lots. But here's what I want to point out. Why did they cast lots? You say, because they didn't know. Okay? Why didn't they know? It's because of what happens between verse 6 and verse 7. Look at Jonah 1, verse 6. Captain's like, what are you doing? Call to your God. Verse, the next verse says they cast lots. Do you know why they cast lots? Because of what Jonah said to the captain. Do you know what Jonah said to the captain? Nothing. He said, what are you doing? If Jonah was like, oh, well, I'm down here because I'm super sad about my sin and I'm running from God. They wouldn't have to cast lots, then they would know. The fact that they're casting lots shows us that Jonah didn't answer the question. He just stood there or he just sat there. And so they're casting lots. He's numb. He's, he's all the way on the right side of this scale on, the, on, on your outline. He's not only ashamed, but he's like in this stupor and he's numb and he's dumb. And he's not being affected by the things of God because he's so caught up in his sin. Captain's really only asking him to do something that's like kind of common sense. Like, we're in a lot of trouble, man. 
Can you call out to your God? Can we need help? And you might look at him and be like, what kind of a sinner is in a place where they wouldn't even call out to God for help? We're not even talking about confessing anything. We're not talking about repentance. It's just like asking God for help. How could somebody be in a place so lost, so far gone, that they wouldn't even ask God for help? But then I think about it. And I can stand before you today and say, there have been times when I would avoid talking to God about something I know we need to talk about. What about you? Have you ever avoided asking God for help? Like whatever you need or want isn't too hard for him, right? You know he can help. It's beyond that. Like you know he can help. But to ask for help admits something. It admits a, a, a shortcoming on our part. It admits a, an inability, a, a, a weakness, a need that we have. Sarah hands me a jar and says, can you open this? I need help. Implied in that is that she cannot open it. And she needs my brute strength <laughs> to open this jar of pickles. Hopefully she loosened it. Otherwise, we're all in a lot of trouble. Hey, can you help me with this? Translation, I can't do this on my own. God, can you help me? Translation, I need you. I'm in a, a bad spot. I'm inept. I'm unable. It's, sometimes we can ask for, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It's happened to me. I can remember specific, it, it, not, I don't think it's often, but I can remember some specific times in my life, and it's usually if I've gotten myself into a mess. If I've made a decision and I'm like, now we got to do this. And I'm like, you know what? I did this. I'll get myself out. It's my fault. I want to own it. And so it's this, it comes under the guise of I'm going to take responsibility. But in reality, I can't. And I need God's help. I need his favor. I need his guidance. I need his wisdom. It's like, no, no, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't want to talk about it. I'll just, I'm going to make it better. Have you ever avoided asking God for help? When you think about it that way, then you look at Jonah and you're like, I kind of get it. To discuss it with God, to ask for help, means he needs to face something he'd rather not face. He needs to say, I'm running from you, and I need help. And so he decides to go it alone. So after casting lots, they learn it's Jonah, and they pepper him with questions, right? Look at verse 8. They said to him, tell us, on whose account does this evil come upon us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And what people are? He's like, oh, slow down, professor. Whoa, whoa. But they're like, wait a minute. If it's you, then what's bringing, how does this connect? What did you do? Why is this happening? And so here's Jonah. He's all the way on the right side of that scale, right? All the way on the right side in your outline. He not only sinned, but is actively sinning against God. In all the communication we have from Jonah, none of it's remorseful. In fact, he doesn't say anything until verse 9. And when he speaks, look at verse 9. He just says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Which brings us to our first point. You need to prioritize the deepening of your spiritual identity more than anything else. You need to prioritize the deepening of your spiritual identity more than anything else. Friends, they're asking him questions in verse 8. What are you, where are you coming from, and what are you doing? Why is this happening? And they're just asking questions because they're, they're wanting to gain knowledge. But make no mistake, these are deep, deep identity 
questions. The way he responds reveals his identity. And he replies with what seems to be, in what seems to be a rather cavalier manner, right? Just the facts. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God who made the heaven and the earth and the dry land and the sea. I'm a Hebrew. I believe in the big guy upstairs. But it's obviously not like heartfelt because if he's so loved, so followed, was so intimately intertwined in a relationship with God, who he says he fears, would he not be following him and doing, doing what he says? Or would he not be crying out to him saying, help me, save me, save us? For someone who fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, he's not doing anything about the fact that he believes or loves or fears this God he speaks of. He's just saying, this is who I am. It's who I am. I'm a Hebrew. I believe in that guy. And even though he's replying very casually, what he says speaks volumes, and what he does and doesn't do speaks volumes about his identity. Let me see if I can show you that. First of all, your spiritual identity impacts how you view others. Verse 6, the captain comes up and talks to Jonah, asks him these questions. He says nothing. Uh, This man is not even worth his response. He does not care. He doesn't care about who this guy is. He doesn't care about the fact that he's the captain of the ship. And he certainly doesn't care about the fact that he's a pagan who's in need of salvation. He's a prophet for crying out loud. He certainly has the ear of God. He can call out to God and make his needs known as well as the needs of his fellow people who are on the boat. But does he? No. In fact, at this point in the account, there's one believer on board, Jonah, and a bunch of pagans. And the one believer is silent and the pagans are praying. And when he's asked, call to your God. He's silent. He doesn't have to care for them. He doesn't have to answer them. He's going to sit there and stew. Your spiritual identity impacts how you view others. Because if Jonah was cognizant of the fact that he's a believer in the one true God who, as he rightly said, made the sea and the dry land, he would do something about it. He would pray for help. He would ask for mercy. He would confess his sin, repent, something, anything, Jonah. But he's numb and dumb in a stupor over his sin. And this is the same Jonah who refused to go to Nineveh because he hates Ninevites and doesn't want to preach to them is now the same Jonah who's on the boat with other pagans. And he doesn't quite frankly want to talk to them or help them either. He doesn't see others as in need of God's rescue and mercy, but just sees them as others. Your spiritual identity impacts how you view others, but it also impacts how you view yourself. Look at verse 9. After they pepper him with questions, he says, I am a Hebrew. It's interesting to note how Jonah answers their questions if you look at it. The last question they ask him is his nationality, right? Of what people are you? And yet that's the first one he answers, I'm a Hebrew. Several commentators say the fact that the la- that was the last question asked and the first question answered is indicative of how Jonah chiefly identified himself. And that wasn't religiously or spiritually so much as it was racially or ethnically. I'm a Hebrew. I'm with those people. And since he chiefly saw himself as, a, as a, a, a citizen of the nation of Israel, as a Hebrew national, he saw, he saw other people as others, Gentiles. There's us and there's them, non-Hebrews. And he treated them as such. He doesn't talk to them. He doesn't interact with them. He's not helping them, certainly not sharing anything about the Lord who he claims to fear and love. He's just there for the ride. Why? 
because spiritual identity is key to how we view others and ourselves and will play a huge role in whether or not you engage people who are different from you about the Lord. If you're wrapped up in who you are nationally, as Jonah was, you'll be wrapped up in who others are nationally. You'll view them through the same grid. You'll view them with the same value system as you view yourself. You'll engage others accordingly. And then instead of looking at two groups of people, those who believe in Jesus and love him and are going to heaven by the grace of God, and those who don't and are going to get the hell that they deserve and they'll have no means of escape, instead of viewing people as believers and unbelievers who are in need of salvation and you would love to see become believers, you have an us and them mentality. And instead of one anothering, it's not one anothering, it's othering. And that's what Jonah's doing. He's othering. It's the others. The Ninevites are the others. The pagan sailors are the others. Don't need to interact. Why? It's because Jonah's lost the sense of his spiritual identity. Jonah's lost the sense that he needs to be obedient to God. Jonah's lost who he is. When he takes out his spiritual passport, he doesn't see it. Or he doesn't even take out his spiritual passport. Because his spiritual identity is unbelievably shallow. And quite frankly, good for nothing right now. And it affects how he views himself and others. But here's something else it affects. Your spiritual identity impacts how you respond to trials and temptations. Look at verse 10. The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He's, he's numb and dumb and overwhelmed with where he is in life and his walk with the Lord. That he fairly casually mentions to the pagan sailors what he's up to. But he's not concerned enough to repent. So it's not someone who doesn't realize they're sinning, right? It's not, oh my gosh, I didn't, what have I done? It's not like the prodigal who's eating uh, the carob pods is probably what it would have been, eating what the pigs would have eaten, and all of a sudden he comes to his senses and he's like, my father's hired servants have, what am I doing? Comes to his senses and realizes, oh my gosh, this isn't, Jonah's, Jonah knows he's sinning. He says he's sinning. I'm running from God. What are you guys doing? You guys have family in job? Is job a home? Is it going for work? And so it affects how he views this trial. He's not concerned enough to repent, to show remorse, to view the trial as what it is, the grace of God sent to rescue him from his sin, lest he run and run away into his sin. His spiritual identity isn't firmly rooted in God's love for him or his love for God. Rather, it's rooted in his nationality, his religious identity, and his continued rebellious run from God. Hi, my name is Jonah. I'm a Hebrew. I believe in that guy, and I'm running for him, running from him. So if you would, keep your finger in Jonah and turn to Colossians 3, because I want to show you three things that you can do to deepen your spiritual identity. Because what Jonah's going through is not unique to Jonah, and you and I are just as susceptible, friends, for getting who we are in Christ, allowing who we are in another area of our life to become more than who we are, or primary in our mind of who we really are what we do, our station in life, our role, our vocation, our nationality, our socioeconomic status, whatever. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 and take a look at verse 10. Uh, We'll start in verse 9, actually. Colossians 3 verse 9 says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10 says, And have put on the new self... 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is what? Not Jew, not Greek, not circumcised and uncircumcised, not barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And so it's a reminder right there for Paul to say, listen, all of those other identity factors, they're all real, they're all secondary. Right now as a Christian, the primary way that you identify yourself is as a Christian is the fact that Christ is in all. And that for us as Christians, we are blood-bought sinners by the grace of God. And these are top, right now I want to walk through this very, very briefly, probably run through this, and give you what I think to be the top three ways to deepen your spiritual identity. Number one, making spending time with God's people a priority. Look at verse 12. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Look through verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, and tell me how you can be obedient to those verses if you live a life as a solo Christian. It is implied, it is assumed, that we are living in each other's lives so that we can be kind to one another, so that we can forgive one another, so that we can be patient with one another. And so that we would constantly be reminded of who we really are as people. Who we really are as citizens of heaven first before everything else. Who we really are and where our spiritual identity really does lie. We make time with God's people a priority. That helps us to deepen our spiritual identity. But we also view time in God's word as a necessity. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Viewing our time in God's word is not just something extra we add on to our lives because it's helpful and nice, but realizing that our time in God's word is an absolute positive necessity. Not so that we can just be puffed up with knowledge, not so that we can be a know-it-all, not so we can drop fun facts at parties, not so we can impress other people or even impress ourselves, but because man cannot live on bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if we really believe that, we'll eat it up. Because we need it. Not because it's helpful, not because you've been a Christian for a while and you should know more than you do. It's not, it's not that. We need it. I need this. This is, where I, this is what I eat. This is how I live. We view God's word as a necessity. Spending time with him as a necessity reminds me who I am in Christ. Reminds me that Christianity is not something I tack on to other things in my life. But Christianity is who I, I am a Christian. Everything else gets tacked on to it. It's not like, no, but I'm primarily a pastor. And I also, to be a pastor, you got to love Jesus, right? So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a Jesus lover too. You're primarily an accountant. That's what you do. That's how you earn money. That's how you serve. And so you're primarily an accountant and you're a Christian accountant. So you tack that on and you're gonna, not going to fudge the numbers. No. Jesus Christ has died for my sins. I put off the old. I put on the new, like Colossians 3 talks about. And everything else is tacked on to it. Jesus doesn't get tacked on to anything. The fact that I'm a Christian doesn't get tacked onto everything. It revolutionizes and reshapes everything so that that's my primary identity. We view time in God's word as a necessity, time with God's people as 
vital. And we also devote ourselves to pleasing God before anyone or anything else. Look at Colossians 3, verse 17. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Skip down to verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so there, Paul is saying, you got to have a different view, man. you got to view it differently. I know it looks like you're working for men, you're working for people, but you have to always remember you're primarily working for the Lord Christ. Now, I don't have a human boss. Kids have human parents. We have human spouse. Like, I feel like I'm... And Paul's like, get out of that mentality. You're working for the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's not about the horizontal. Always have a vertical perspective. Why? Because primarily you're identified as a spiritual person, as a child of God. And Jonah does none of these things. He doesn't devote himself to pleasing God before all else. Because if he did, that would make him want to see others do the same. It's not the case with Jonah. Look at verse 10. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the, Lord, from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he told them. Wow, that's pretty brazen. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? You ever, the, the pagan sailors didn't kill him. It would be awfully tempting, right? You brought this on? All right, well, someone's going to die. And if we're all going to, like, we're going to kill you. I can't believe you did this. It would be very tempting for them to do that. But they don't do that. What can we do to you, since you're running from your God, what can we do to you so that we might all survive? Verse 12, Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Let me reread that verse and emphasize two words. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Not for us. For you. Jonah wants to die. Just throw me in, man. Then the sea will quiet down for you. I'll be dead. But you know what? It's fine. I have it I'm running from God for crying out loud. Like, I have it coming. He wanted to die. The sailors, the pagans, didn't want Jonah to die. Look at verse 13. They don't throw him overboard. They're like, yeah, we're going to row. We're like, so not going to throw you into this. That's, okay. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Then they called out to the Lord. Who's the first people to pray to the Lord? The prophet Jonah? No, the pagans. They called out to the Lord, not their own gods, to our God. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're like, this feels wrong. This is not 
Lord, we hope you'll forgive us. We hope you won't lay on us innocent blood. You know we're not desirous to do this. I mean, we were rowing our our tails off trying to get back. We can't, so we're going to do this. Which brings us to our second point. You need to see the discipline of the Lord as the good sign that it is. Verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea seized from its raging. And the Lord appointed a great fish, verse 17, to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so this story just gets stranger because just when we would think this is, this is it, right? The one that God is angry with, he's now been thrown into the sea, the sea calmed down, he died and paid for his sin as he should. The moral of the story is you don't run from God or you might drown. The moral of the story is nobody gets away with running away from God because he will find you. He'll hurl a storm. He's God, Jehovah God. You don't run from him. It's not true. Then the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah and he lives in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You need to see the discipline of the Lord is the good sign that it is. Here's why. Right now, right now, with that fish in verse 17 is in my opinion the first good news we see that Jonah is loved by God. Do you know why? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so we look at this and we say, this is terrible. He's been eaten by a fish. This is terrible. He's, he, he, the, the, the storm and everything and everybody's almost dying, hurling cargo. This is terrible. We need to interpret this through a biblical grid and realize that this is the discipline of God. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I discipline my children. Do you know why I discipline them? Because I love them. I don't discipline your children. Do you know why I don't discipline them? They're not my children. The Lord disciplines his kids. He does not discipline those who are not his. And so the fact that all this trouble is following Jonah is actually really, really good news because it shows that God is running hard after him. But the question is this, in your life, how have you responded to God's discipline? When things are going crazy in your life and circumstances are just not as you would have them, how do you respond to that? It may not be because of your sin, it might be because of the sin of other people. Or it might just be because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But how do you respond to that? Do you pause and say, this might be God doing something good in my life. I may not have deserved it. It may not be God's getting my attention because I need to do something different. But he's he's disciplining me. He's refining me. He's changing me to be more like him and less like myself. Because I think there's at least, this isn't your outline, but I was just thinking about it. I think there's at least three ways we can respond to God's discipline in our life. The first is just circumstantial, right? This is my lot in life. This is the bed I've made, and now I'm sleeping in it. This is my fault. You sow what you reap. I've sown. This is what I'm reaping. It's just all very logical, right? Circumstantial. Very, it's if P, then Q. This is how it works. I did this, so this is happening. But it's all very godless, right? I, I can explain it all. This is why this is happening. I made this dumb decision, so this is happening. But it's all very, it's, it's very godless. It's easy to explain. This is kind of what Jonah is doing. Nowhere in what he says is hope for him. He's like, throw me in and the sea will be quiet for you. Me, I'll die, but whatever. I have it coming to me. It's my fault, and so it is what it is. Just throw me in. And so it's just this, well, this is just going to happen. It's just logical. 
A second way we can acknowledge it or respond to discipline in our lives is be angry about it. Reject it. Buck it. Fight it. Try to escape it. Build your life around improving the circumstances in your life. You give it your all because you've made it your all. Every day, every day begins with you thinking about how you can improve your own circumstances because God isn't, so you, someone's got to do it, so you might as well. And you're pretty ticked, and you've had enough, and it's time to make things better. Or the third way, and that is to acknowledge the circumstances for what they really are and to understand that God's in it, that God hurls the storms, that God appoints the fish, that God is involved in all of the circumstances in my life. And if this is how he chooses to grow me, so be it. It's the discipline, loving, disciplining hand of God. It's not the punishment of God. Discipline and punishment, they're not the same. This is not, this is not punitive, right? You deserve to be swallowed by a fish, you dumb prophet. No, the fish is God's grace in Jonah's life so that he wouldn't drown. The storm is God's grace in Jonah's life so that he would be thrown in and not stay on a ship and get to Joppa and do whatever he was going to do over there. It's all God's grace. It's the discipline of God where God can work through the circumstances that you're in, even the circumstances you've brought on yourself to still bring about his glory and your good. That's what discipline does. And so what about you? How do you respond to circumstances in your life that could very well be God using them to do good things eventually, even though it's not good things immediately. Do you accept it? Do you lean into it? Do you ask God for help? Or do you buck it? This is not, I got to get out. This is, no, uh-uh. This can't be good. This can't be of God. If it was God, it would feel good. Jonah has lost his spiritual identity. He's not seeing this as the loving discipline of God. He's not repenting. And he just wants to die. We need to respond better than Jonah to the discipline in our life, which brings us to our last point. We can respond better than Jonah because the real Jonah points to somebody who really was better than Jonah, and that was Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You've heard the term foxhole conversion, right? Everyone believes in God in the foxhole, right? That's what people say, like, People are coming close to death. All of a sudden, people are willing to do all sorts of things for God. I want you to notice in verse 16, it says, The men feared the Lord exceedingly. These are the pagan sailors. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You don't offer sacrifices on a ship. You offer sacrifices where? In the temple. Something happened to these sailor, in these sailors' lives that caused them to be cognizant and aware of God long after this storm. God changed their lives. God did an amazing thing. When we look at our circumstances in our life, we can respond better than Jonah because we know someone who is better than Jonah. Because we have a Savior who, like Jonah, 
threw himself into the anger and the wrath of God. Absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf. That God, who is angry with the wicked each and every day, would look at a sinner like you and like me. And instead of pouring out the wrath that you deserve and that I deserve, Jesus Christ would absorb that wrath on our behalf. And the sea that would be stormy in our life, the the wrath, the very hell that we deserve would be stilled. Because Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and like me. And so when we look at Jonah, we can be reminded of someone who is better than Jonah, who is greater than Jonah. We have the cross to look back upon. We see God making good on his promises. We see God providing a substitute. We see, sure, Jonah being thrown into the sea so that the sailors might be saved. Yet we have someone who was thrown right into death, who Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame for sinners like you and like me. And yet he wasn't swallowed by a fish, but was swallowed by death itself. Literally died, stayed dead, was buried, and for three days didn't get puked up by a fish, but literally started breathing when he was dead and rose from the grave so that sinners like you and me might have life. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That we have someone better than Jonah, that we can respond better than Jonah. Not because we are better than Jonah, but because we have a Savior that we can look back upon and say, Wow, he's a living hope. He's the one who set me free. He bridged the chasm between me and a righteous God and made it possible that I might have faith in Christ. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My imperfect record, signed by Jesus Christ. His perfect record has my name on it. He got what I deserved. I get what he deserves. God is satisfied because his wrath has been appeased. And I go free. Hallelujah. What a savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. What a living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we might live our lives and remember who we are spiritually Having our spiritual identity be the primary thing that motivates us to please the Lord, to love other people. Seeing ourselves first and foremost as Christians, as little Christs as it would be called. As people who seek to imitate our Savior because he loves us and has set us free. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ, our living, living Father, we come before you grateful for the good news of the gospel, thankful that we have someone who is the better Jonah, that that is none other than Jesus Christ, who's our perfect Savior, the spotless Lamb sent by you so that we might be freed. Lord, would you help us to remember who we are in you first and foremost? 
Would you help us to always think of ourselves in connection to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Would nothing else in our hearts and minds become more important, uh, more top of mind, more at the top of our hearts than the fact that we are loved by you because of our Savior? Lord, help us to live on mission for you that we might be bright shining lights in a dark and dying world that you might use us to grow your kingdom to glorify yourself do it for your name we pray in jesus name amen